Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. This week on Meet in 3, we're exploring the intersection between food, agriculture, and competition. Learn how a chicken raising contest in the 1940s led to the poultry industry we have today. And they were going to run a contest and try and develop what they would call the chicken of tomorrow. We'll also venture into the world of agricultural video games, where a new set of tractors is making a lot of fans happy. The biggest addition to 19 was the John Deere's. That's what everyone was hyped for. And we pay a visit to a group of Indian restaurants that aren't on the friendliest of terms. Usually they wait for my restaurant, but after a long wait, they go to next door or downstairs. But this is how they do business. They completely copy whatever we do. Embrace your competitive spirit and be the first to listen to new Meet and 3 episodes by subscribing now. That's Meet Plus Sign T-H-R-E-E, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Good morning. Patrick, why are you laughing over I love there? that. I love that theme song. <laughs> it's just so dramatic, but I feel like we should be on TV and someone should be like refreshing your powder makeup and making sure you look good right before the queue. An orchestra is the only musical type that can contain our show. For sure, for sure. Well, good morning. This is the main course OG. Today is Thursday, April 4th. I am in studio with Patrick Martins this morning. You already heard from him a little bit. We have uh, Aaron Silva joining us on our panel. Hi, everyone. And then uh, you have me, Emily Pearson. Brandon is out in California, and uh, I don't know, Mike's uh, drumming somewhere. Anyway, our guests for the Weekly Grill today are Aaron Fairbanks of Women in Hospitality United, BKBF Productions, and Grout. We'll talk about that a little later. And Lizzie Young of Liz Young Booksellers in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. Hi. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. morning. Excited to be here. Thanks for being with us. We got a legend in the house, Aaron Fairbanks, <laughs> former executive director. First, first. First. If you're the first, that that you say first. If you're former, you're just like One two and many. after is, is oh. former. All right. First. And once first. a president, always a president. You would still say President right. Clinton. You wouldn't say Mr. still. Governor. Do you have Secret Service? Pataki. I, I would love to be able to share more on that, but I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right. We are going to jump right into our our first uh, segment, the Weekly Based. So I was reading yesterday that the New York Times reported uh, that Beyond Meat's Impossible Burger will roll out at Burger King nationally. It's already been at 1,000 Carl's Jr. restaurants in, since January. And as we've talked on this show, White Castle has sold a slider version in its 380 stores since late last year. Beyond Meat has based its products on pea protein and beet juice to give its burgers a bloody look like meat. Impossible's biggest innovation has come from its use of heme, is that how I say it? Hem? Mm-hmm. An iron-rich protein that gives it the taste of meat. Cattle ranchers have criticized how the Impossible Burger, Impossible Burger is being marketed, I, aka as meat, and some environmental groups have said further testing is needed before the market share can increase. What do you guys think? Have you tried it? Impossible burger. Go. What Speak. is heme? No, seriously, what is that? I'm gonna have to Google it exactly. It's, it's not accepted yet, right? It's a. It's like um, it comes from like it's like similar to hemoglobin. It's like the thing that allows the Impossible Burger when you like it's red and it's raw state, and as you cook it, it will it will cook similar to a burger, so you could have like kind of a mid rare veggie burger appearance. It contains iron and. Um, it's the, the non-protein part of hemoglobin, as you said. Where do they get it from? Science. Are they believe, growing it? I can't believe dish? they care how it looks when it sits in the middle of a bun and mayonnaise and all that stuff. <laughs> I mean, you know, if it's being sold by itself at a butcher shop, sure, maybe then it looks weird. But I don't know. I've seen it. So, like, I've had it um, at events, like, as a burger, and I honestly... I don't know that I would have totally noticed it wasn't uh, it wasn't a meat burger unless someone had really told me. And I've also been at friends' house where they have it in their fridge, and it comes just like you would buy a regular 
beef burger patty. It's like in a two pack. It looks red. It feels like meat, and it's it's really interesting to me there because I think their target market is not vegetarians. It's actually targeted towards meat eaters, which is why they spent so much time and effort being able to like um, make sure that you know visibly it really was reminiscent of meat, so people didn't feel like it was an alternative, but actually. You know, it is obviously. Yeah, no. As they say, it's it's an alternative just for supposedly health benefits. It's not necessarily because of how you feel about the, the the meat industry or the or the movement. You know, towards being vegan or vegetarian. But I, I think noticed, it's. Oh, what, what were you gonna say? I was just gonna say there was a picture in the article of the packaging and mm-hmm. how they presented at Burger King, and it's in this like really beautiful green like craft paper looking situation. So it's not like I in it and was out. Silver. With green writing, or no, I don't know what I saw. It was like a green and white, almost like checkered, but it it looked like it's not like an in and out where they present it to you and it's like open and you just sort of people want to take a picture of it now and it's you know overflowing from the bun, it's wrapped up anyway. So, I I, it is interesting that they care about what and it's within the burger, they are going to use the mayonnaise at Burger King. They're testing it in St. Louis, by the way. Uh, so by using mayonnaise, it's not a vegan option. It's just a vegetarian option. It's so, also not necessarily healthier once you put every yeah, condiment yeah. Well, on it. I well. think it's fantastic, though. <laughs> it's fantastic. And I think that we're going to need to redefine what we say about fast food. Now, like, what is Carlo Petrini going to say about McDonald's or Burger King, I should say, now that they have the healthiest way of eating a burger, even though, as you say, it's not necessarily much healthier. It helps the environment, right? Less methane, all that. Are we all meat eaters in this room? Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think it's interesting if you if your kind of like dietary approach is you want to eat like whole foods that would be recognized by your grandma or great grandma. I think the Impossible Burger definitely doesn't fit in that category. Um, I, I do think that people have a stigma about eating meat, red meat in particular. And, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's kind of like what kind of meat you're eating, how frequently you're eating it, you know, how, how big the volume is when you are eating the rest of your diet. Like anything, you know, you, you want to make it super simple, like yes, no, binary. But I just I don't think that food's like that. Lizzie, you work in the rare book world. Someday will there be a book that says one impossible burger patty? I don't think it's so. It's a heme come true. I don't I nice. still don't understand what it is. Like where does it come from? I'm all upset now that I didn't stop at like White Castle and uh, and pick some up for, for I think breakfast. There's also like something um, there's like cantaloupe in there. Oh, I don't it was know. like I, I literally oh, sat next to like one of the founders at this event and we were talking about allergens, right? Which I know we're gonna maybe touch on a little bit later in the show, but it's also like what are the actual ingredients? Because no one would be like, oh, I, I just because it's this. new. Just because it's new doesn't mean it's bad. I mean, I think that no. there are going to be some new words in there, and it is going to feel a little weird. But I think it's a great step towards eating healthier. But I will say about the marketing, which is what the cattle ranchers—they're they're like, obviously can't stop it from happening, but they want to sue. Uh, so that they don't use the words meat and all that. And so, Anne, I was telling this to Anne yesterday, and one of the dairy industry lines is, a nut does not lactate. Therefore, you cannot market it as milk and all that. So it was interesting. Anne was on the side of, do what you're doing, but don't call it a hamburger, please. Well, I think it's because the dairy industry, by and large, has really lost that fight. You know, the saturation of uh, soy soy milk, milk, oat milk, almond milk, coconut milk, they're all in the milk aisle. They're all called milk. They, you know, I, I believe there's a suit that was brought by an, a group of, of dairy industry professionals to like strike milk from the label, but I, I don't think that they had any success with that. So I would anticipate that like cattle ranchers kind of looking down the future at what's happened in they dairy. They see it happening. Yeah, now. they're kind of like, whoa, wait just a minute. Well, when uh, it's funny that uh, I've heard when I was talking to the Saxelbees last night that St. Louis is often the test ground for new things like this and. Um, I guess it's a sophisticated bunch, but also Midwest. And middle I don't middle know. of the country. Yeah. Like smack middle in the country. Fascinating that they mm-hmm. would start there. That's their test ground. They got St. Louis. Volpe is there. You know, there must be something. And they have a great yeah, baseball Anhe- team. Anheuser-Busch is there, too. Yeah, yeah. I guess a b- inspiration for Shake Shack is, is St. Louis. Interesting. That's where Danny Meyer's from. That's yeah. where he's yeah. from, right. 
All right. Well, speaking of the, the supermarket aisle, Tuesday was National Peanut Butter and Jelly Day. Happy National Peanut Butter and Jelly Day, everyone. Yes, we, 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 yum, love, yum. Those, we love those holidays around here. Um, so, of course, we have to ask, smooth peanut butter or crunchy peanut butter? For me, it depends on what you're having it with. So if you're going to have fluff, you have to have smooth. Okay. I mean, you, like Wonder Bread, fluff. Smooth peanut butter. It's kind of heavenly. And uh, crunchy, just by itself. So, so what we the reason we really ask this question is that gluten, dairy, peanuts, <laughs> what do you think of this new wave of food allergen awareness? I mean, there's a lot of things talked about today that weren't 30, 50 years ago. Um, I read there's like a few different theories on why this is a thing. Um, one um, is that people aren't uh, exposing their kids to allergens early enough because maybe like the doctor told them, be careful, you don't know for sure mm-hmm. if they have an allergy, but that might be part of it if they're not exposed to those things. Interesting. Um, then it doesn't show up until, or their body doesn't create the antibodies for it. Um, Western diet is another theory because we eat so much sugar and processed foods and so our, our gut bacteria isn't healthy um, and you know, can't build up uh, the resistance to those allergens. So I don't know. That's what some people say. It's like so Purell and fast food. And that too, yeah. Purell Purell and fast food, which cleans everything. (laughs) There was a lady that that was like, oh, could you please put Purell to come into my kid's house? And the kid, you know, and I felt weird. I, I, I felt that that's not good for anybody. It kills all the bacteria. Some of it's good, right? Yeah. So and soap and water is fun. You Bubbles can't hide from that stuff in New York City. <laughs> Maybe there's like a probiotic against the Purell. Like you do use Purell, but then you put something else back on. That would be very American. We'll be like, let's yeah. extract this naturally yes. occurring thing and then sell mm-hmm. you a product to correct for our extraction. It would be like the newest lotion. It's like, well, you just dried out your hands. You took away all the, the, yeah. the bad bacteria. And now we're going to give you this lotion. It's like all the side in. effects on those drugs. You yeah. know, they're like, do this. Now your liver could fall out. So, you know, just be aware. Well, I just want you to know, if you are a smooth peanut butter lover, you're more introverted, you arrive early to work, and you stress more easily. And then... If you're a crunchy peanut butter lover, you're more extroverted, you believe in love at first sight, and you're more, <laughs> and you're more likely to have gone skydiving. This was based on a survey taken of 2,000 Americans. But it was interesting. They said most people do prefer to eat peanut butter off a spoon right out of the bar. So good. I have a lot of friends who do that. But I feel like, Patrick, didn't you go to college with like a scion of the peanut butter industry? Who's like, but I lost interest once I found out he was just buying a regular old peanut. Peanuts. There was uh, no heritage, no heirloom. I don't know. Do heirloom peanuts even exist? They must. Yeah. Like Virginia. I think that you can buy uh, special peanuts. Really special, and they're like really long mm-hmm. um, and quite delicious. Now, if you're just buying in a commodity, like who cares? They're still good at a baseball game. Peanuts? Yeah. Peanuts, yes. Well, the ones in the shells. Those are heirloom, right? Well, peanuts oh, are actually sure. not a nut, right? They're a legume, which I think is like a little... I don't know. I feel like I've been like... What is an artichoke? Family of? Uh, I would guess cruciferous vegetable, but I feel thistle. like... It's a thistle. It's a thistle. Oh, yes. That makes sense. Yeah. Based on I was going to ask if it was in the nightshade family, but I don't even think that's right. <laughs> Shit. I, I hope lost. not. Yeah. I'm not eating Are you night- allergic I'm, to nightshades? Yeah, I'm not but, eating nightshades. Why not? Rheumatoid. Oh. But real quick, can we go around your team crunchy, team smooth, Emily? You know, I didn't grow up eating peanut butter. My mom mm. hated it, and so we <laughs> never had it in the house. But in later Did years... Did she ever go so far as to say, we have an allergen against it? No, never. <laughs> she just hates the smell, I think. But my dad, turns out, loves peanut butter and jelly. So like now, now that like they are empty nesters, he'll buy peanut butter and make himself peanut butter and jelly. So... I don't know. I think if I had to pick, I would pick crunchy. I'm fascinated when there's like you go to Zay bars or any of these places and they have like 30 different kinds so of unbelievable many. sandwiches and, and the peanut, peanut butter, butter and jelly it's because a yeah, it's a, unlike any other sandwich there. All right, Patrick, which one is your preference? Personality wise, I must be. Um, no, I must be smooth. You must be smooth. But I like crunchy. <laughs> so I'm very conflicted right now. <laughs> Thank you, Erin, for understanding <laughs> the one emotional, the one time I open up, and this is what I get from you. But I wonder, I, I would, I guess, because you have kids too, are you like a multi 
peanut butter no. type household? I'm like, just... this is the house that we're going to be, kids. Like yep. it or not. And okay. if they really You're protest. You're a fondue and <laughs> trout row house, right? Fondue. Yeah, we do fondue. We have three sets, but we don't do it that often. We, do eat, <laughs> we eat a lot of caviar. Of course. Especially Josie. Row, row. Um, I don't have anything against crunchy peanut butter, but like in a life or death situation, I would probably pick smooth. If that ever happened, I don't think. I like natural peanut butter because it's sort of somewhere in between. It's like a coarse grind, mm-hmm. and there's not as much sugar in it, but I also love sugar, so it's it's a hard call. Hopefully. You're of the generation where I thought you were going to say the peanut butter and the jelly in the same <laughs> jar. Uh, no, that Welsh's one. That's not right. <laughs> oh, I, I do like that where you go to like Zabar's or Sahadi's, or I think Whole Foods does it where you like grind it fresh. Grind I mean, they own. do that a lot with the... Hmm. That's how I find almond butter to be appealing. Like, I don't really like the idea of it just in a jar, but if it's like part of this process where you get to watch it be ground yeah. and like you have it fresh in a little container. I feel like I, I made like something. Yeah. Well, I mean, soon we're probably going to see our artisanal nut butters and like a home conching and grinding process. Oh. That'll like... <laughs> Another appliance we have to have in the house. Another thing for the counter. Yeah. I say this all the time, but I know what's going to happen in the future is all these chefs are like, Aaron, when you're in your 70s and 80s and you don't go out quite as much, you know, you're a little that's, bit more. That's already happening. <laughs> so, so it's going to start sooner with you. But I think thousands of people, every chef, ex-chef, line cook, every old brewmaster, every old professor at schools, you know, in cooking schools are all going to start these little micro economies. And I think like a building like mine, I'll basically have three in-building chefs. And for seven bucks, you get that thing delivered almost like room service in that there'll be artisanal peanut butter, little cottage industry. Someone will be on the third floor in an official test kitchen making their own peanut butter, oh, I love just this. selling it to oh the neighborhood. I think it's going to go local. Microbreweries, you know, get a little license. There could be, you know, bars in the basement of, of a block or a building. You never have to live. And then all it. the former Uber and Lyft drivers will be in charge of delivering them to the neighborhood because <laughs> they're all going to be out of work, too. Right. They'll park their car, double park their car outside and come in and do it. All right. New business plan. It's a good prediction, actually. I, I, well. Where will all the chefs go? You know, when there's in the in their 70s. Well, they're going to get rid of their cars. So that demographic propose... didn't exist before. Um, 10 million chefs who are in their 70s. But it will exist in 30 years. It sounds like we'll be eating well. I yeah. think so, yeah. I do think so. So proposed congestion pricing is sure to have an effect on all New Yorkers, not just drivers. So for those of you who do not drive, uh, 5 million delivery trucks serve Manhattan retailers each year. And now every truck delivering food and goods into Manhattan south of 61st Street will be slapped with the new fee, which is expected to be about $25 for commercial vehicles of all sizes. This will be on top of bridge and tunnel tolls, which are already higher for like 18-wheelers and larger trucks. What do you think? I'm a huge, huge fan of congestion pricing, but they're stupid to charge trucks. Trucks are not the problem. The, the problem is all the Ubers, you know, I hate to say it, the taxis, and most of all, tourists who shouldn't be driving in New York and probably who don't even want to be driving in New York. They want to have a big parking lot in New Jersey, take a nice little ferry, and then they're in our great public transit system, which is still pretty good. It's true, though. People are both afraid of driving in New York City and also afraid to get lost if they don't drive in New York City. They're like, if I drive to this exact place and park my car, I won't get lost. Right. But it's not a good idea. It's overall. a grid. <laughs> it's a grid system. Yeah. It could be easier. <laughs> oh, my God. What do the people do who live on those streets? That's a good question. On which streets? Like in between those um, those areas. What, I what wonder if it's like the equivalent. Where I wonder if if you show ID that like this is your address that you mean like south of sixty first. Yeah. Like no, no. The I don't know. That's a great question. I don't know. Yeah. I, feel I mean, there's no ID. There's no one carting you. They're not going to put toll booths in. Oh, you're just going to be like a, the way yes. the Easy Pass, the yes. Express, you like drive under it and you get charged? Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. not going to be toll booths or, or any mm-hmm. guy giving tickets. But I do think maybe you'll have an Easy Pass that flicks you only for a dollar or for no charge. Well, I know, like, I think if you're a resident or if you have Easy Pass, there's always been this thing where, like, the tolls are cheaper. So maybe there's some way to say, like, but then I would always say, like, 
I live on 59th Street, and I just never changed my address. What if Heritage failed and you saw me running one of these street toll booths on 61st Street? You're like, ah, I left Heritage. Look at what happened to you, Patrick. You would love the in- the human interaction. Yeah, you would also really like actually say, see you in that position. Oh, who's in the back there? Hello, little no. pooch. What's your name? No, you would also be like, oh, I see him coming. 18-wheeler. He's not going to be able to make the right. The guy on the curb, the guy on the corner is parked too close to the curb. And then there'll be the people I don't like that I have vendettas with. I'm like, 10 minutes. That's how long it's going to take you to get your change. <laughs> 10 minutes. I wonder, um, I'm really thinking about like the kind of pass through of these costs because I feel like you could make an argument that uh, delivery drivers, trucks are going to maximize, they're going to be able to do their job quicker. So those costs will like offset one another because they'll be able oh, to get in and out faster. But also how those costs are going to be passed through to restaurants, retail outlets, all those. Because you already, you know, if you get a linen linen delivery, oftentimes uh, produce delivery, there is a small fuel surcharge that is, is tacked on. So that, you know, that $25 fee gets divided by the 100 restaurants that, you know, a quarter a restaurant and then all of a sudden you know it's just like it's like adding on mm-hmm. in different spaces but I think I've also done like commercial delivery in New York City and I have to say when I was working for Flying Pigs Farm mm-hmm. I it took it took an entire day to make nine stops in Manhattan and Brooklyn well, you're I mean, driving a big truck yeah but that that, that to me is like insane like and of course did we have the most efficient system was i the best driver could i unload the pig the fastest (laughs) absolutely not but you bring that up good driving is the best way to avoid congestion and most people are not good drivers they're not forward thinking aggressive to driver's responsibility you have to advance uh, with the car you have to signal you know you have to allow people to accelerate and go through you can't double park in places where like cars can't pass you know if people were taught to drive better as a culture you know we're in europe where do you practice in america where do you practice to to drive like parking lots. Where do you drive in Europe? On like that mountain road, like 30 minutes north of your house, because that's driving. I feel like I learned this from you when very early in Heritage Foods, when we were doing deliveries, you were like, just don't impede the flow. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, there are rules, there are lanes, there are Are we going to call but, him a mentor for no. that? Yes, <laughs> for driving. As, a, as a mentor and driving and many thing. other things. You should never use your brake unless you have to. People who brake uh, all the time, totally I'm like, why is that. his brake lights on? Also, you accelerate out of a curve. You slow down going in, but you accelerate out. So these are all little things that help keep the flow going. Didn't they do a study of, of European cities? Aren't there like a ton of European cities that already have this kind of... Mm. Um, you know, no, no um, trucks in certain areas. I mean, isn't there, a, isn't there like many studies on this already? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's like very popular and successful in Europe. It's just not something we've seen it right in the U.S. I, also, we're a car, we're like we're a car, car and, and culture, and like our entire country. When we tell an American was like not built. to do something, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot believe I can drive down Park Avenue at forty miles an hour, wrap around Union Square with literally three hundred thousand people standing in the street waiting to cross. It's it's outrageous. Well, we're aggressive pedestrians here. I always notice yeah. that when I go to San. Francisco and I'm waiting in the middle of the street for the light to change and all of the San Franciscans are looking at me like I am a crazy lunatic and I'm like let's go we gotta keep it moving guys <laughs> I can't believe it. cars are so precise if that device wasn't so precise I mean there'd be deaths all over the place in New York thank yeah. god cars are precise they're extremely precise they're very consistent just you know you would have thought like no one ever loses like a few I mean, inches. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like it just got a little dark. Oof. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I got pulled over for the whole Vision Zero thing right when de Blasio first started it. But they were just, I think they were just trying to prove a point. Like, I was not in the wrong. It was. I, I probably would have gotten a ticket for slowing traffic had mm-hmm. I not made the, the turn off of 14th yeah, Street onto 6th Avenue. You should sue Instead, them. I got pulled over on foot. No, I, I fought it. I got pulled over by a cop on foot along with the three people behind me. Like, it was purely just a, we need to say that we pulled over this many people in the Operation well, Vision Zero. In fairness to the police, I have been in the car with you where you pull right up to the knees of someone who has the <laughs> wow. right of way, and then you say, ooh, you can go. Ooh, <laughs> just kidding. Ooh, no, no, no. I shouldn't have brought up this story. It was one incident. <laughs> I was trying to brew controversy, uh. and our favorite duchess, Meghan Markle, <laughs> 
has asked you to create a single bite for her upcoming baby shower. And also, half of England is being invited to this. So it's a bite for her and the royalty, but it also is going to be given to about half the population of England. I thought half the population was invited to the baby shower. Invited to the baby shower. What's your bite? Single bite. Best bite for a world event. It's got to be something with bacon. (laughs) Good answer. We like Lizzie more now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I keep thinking, and uh, this is like baby showers, I think, bring out like a little bit of an obnoxious hat where I'm like, something baby, baby vegetable. <sighs> but in my mind, I'm like, uh, like a, like a thumbelina carrot that's been poached in some like English, you know, butter. They're like a very like dairy, there's a nice dairy tradition there. And so something that you would put the entire, you know, thing and it would really kind of change form in your mouth so you have it's like be a vegetable but very like fat forward wow okay good job i would make some sort of dessert nice sweet can't go wrong there Uh, no one's ever said that actually that's a good uh good thing we've heard drinks we've heard soup (laughs) you know like borscht but we've never heard that i would probably i would go with the innovate because if you ruin a classic then you know that's your fault and they're gonna judge you for that I think especially in England, you can't ruin like a classic English dish. You'll be disowned forever. But you say a really interesting thing. You know, I think uh, the youth, you know, and not to date me, but, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm double your age. Uh, the stress of making a classic well is higher for the younger people than it is for the older people who have the mentors who are about to ask this question and who are like, yes, I've made it. 50 times. So innovating is brilliant when it works because you're breaking new ground. But a lot of time you're just like, oh, it's just a it's little It's like off. the impossible burger bite. Ooh. Well, impossible burger would be very good. I mean, listen, it's being, it's going to be available at every fast food chain in America. That or its competitor or something like that. That is amazing. And meat companies sell it. I mean, we yeah. know like La Frida Meats carries it. Yeah, I've we seen might it on sell it truck. one day. Who knows? Maybe we'll have a version of it. If we can have a... Heritage heirloom uh, heme. Oh yeah, an heirloom. Yeah, they an had heirloom to come up with heme. a different name for that. It's not. It's it's not. Hemloom. The beets. It's not the, unctuous. The, it's not. Yeah, the mm. beets and the peas will have to be uh, heirloom as well. No, I like unctuous. That's a good word. Yeah, meat does still give certain things, and the meat industry should start working on the terms, taste terms that they have, that the Impossible yeah. Burger doesn't. But I like unctuous. I like succulent. Mm. I like what other words? Does meat have? Uh, I mean, toothsome, fatty, juicy. Uh, juicy is not part of the Impossible Burger. You wouldn't say it's juicy. I haven't tried one. I have to suspect they're going for juicy. It's it's like a great, completely unmemorable burger. You know, you're like, you know, when you go to like a, a pub and you're like, yeah, let's get the burger and the fries, and you're like, that was mm. like delicious, but like. It'll it wasn't about great. the meat. It's never going to be excellent. It's always going to be like, that's fine. That's like good. Uh, you know, you're kind of like meh. It's like the meh. You know, I don't know. It's <laughs> not like so, me- meh. Hem. Hem. Yeah. yeah. Hem. Meh. Hem. So what is the state of food media, publishing and radio? We have two very cutting edge technologies represented here. Aaron <laughs> helped start a radio network. You work with the printing press. I work. Directly with the printing press. <laughs> no, a food. Oh, I know. Food cookbook shop, uh, food literature. So, what is the state of food media? You know, with the Niders, what you guys have done. Well, I what I see um, in in my world of of uh, rare books, and so actually, I have new books too, um, is that people spend so much time on their devices that the actual object of a book is really exciting to people. They seem to really love the idea of having a book in their hand. They're going to, you know, use recipes from um, from their phones and 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 other other um, laptops, but they love having the book. So it's kind of coming back. Yeah, I definitely feel like there's this kind of uh, tension between our actual selves and our aspirational selves and you have media producers who are playing to both sides of that equation so actual self clicking on the you know kim kardashian tag or the like super um i'm like blanking on the word click click bitey click baity 
fast digest kind of like junk uh, content consumption. And there's like some good stuff in there. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, I I think very much to what Lizzie is saying, there's this craving for really authentic, deep storytelling, beautiful paper, beautiful imagery, craft. An object. Like an an actual object. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is then sometimes articulated on social media. Yep. And it's, you have that aspirational side where you're like, I want that too. Like I need to do that style or, but then you need to show people to validate it. That you've done that. That you've done that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you have like content producers that are, you know, getting really experimental, which I think is exciting. And I feel like the other thing that feels exciting to me is you're really due to social media, you know, people that, you know, historically we haven't heard from have access to audiences. So you're getting these like stories and perspectives and uh, kind of points of view that we've we've just haven't seen kind of populate pop culture in such a way, and so like that's I think also really exciting because there's a whole new like landscape to to be discovered, especially if you're not a member of some of those groups. I mean that's the thing I love about podcasts is like I can like hang out with like two guys from the Bronx who are like really into you know wrestling and smoking pot, and I'm like that's not really my scene, but I'm kind of curious about how do these people think, and you can be a fly in the room without being in the room. I also, Lizzie, I, I read that you were um, you were once an editor at Gourmet Magazine, and I what I notice also for people that I follow is there's certain roles that at larger publications those people would have normally been behind someone else in line, behind a senior editor, their name maybe never would have made it into the print edition, or you would have not known who the food stylist was or the photographer was, but because of social media, people do have a voice independent of the publication that they work with, and I think we have so much more knowledge about these, like, whether they're influencers or who the different people are. I don't know if, like, sort of, when you were at Gourmet, was it, I don't know, was it very different in terms of your exposure um, well, my exposure was to the actual um, uh, people who were getting the magazine. My first job there was answering the phone, and people would call and ask. They were like, you know, I saw the article about the Lake Country, and I would actually copy it and send it to them. <laughs> so we were actually still, it was before computers, um, ancient. It was in the late 80s, and we were doing things like that. We were like, we had direct contact with people who were reading the magazine, which was really nice, which is why I think Gourmet was such a um, loved entity at the time. It was before Condé Nast, actually. The Times had a good piece that said, if you're a regular anywhere, call us, tell us your story, you know, kind of engaging with the uh, public in that way. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's interesting. I mean, the publishing world is, it, it, it's a time thing, but it, it It has all these classics to it that I think, uh, basically what I'm thinking is before there were a lot of examples, before there was media and social media, everybody was an influencer. Everybody was their own influencer because there weren't models to follow. Because I find few people don't know as much because they're copying versus not having access to the information. That's why the longer you... I hate that word so much. Influencer? I hate that word. It's cringy. It's so cringeworthy. We're all influencers. I know, but can we come up with another name for that? Mm. Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) But speaking of, so, mom and pop shops, you recently opened a brick-and-mortar bookshop focusing on rare culinary arts books and new books. And new books, yes. So, I mean, like, who's your customer? Is it mostly chefs? You know, um... Actually, no, people just walking through the neighborhood. And, you know, of course, there's people who, who read about me and know um, about, you know, where you know where I am and they'll come. But basically, it's people coming by. And then, I you know, I've been in the rare book business for eight years. So my um, most of the people who are buying books for me are special collections librarians. So speaking of librarians, we have a favorite question on this show. Uh, we have a friend, uh, Davia Nelson, of the Kitchen Sisters on NPR, and they have this series called The the Keepers. So who is your keeper? Someone who you think is, I don't know, preser- what preserving is knowledge. Preserving knowledge. Keeper it can be truth. in any way. It's a truth. It's like not an opinion. It's so a if truth. you could put someone into this Keepers Hall of Fame. Mentor, keeper. I would say, uh, you know, my first pastry chef was Nick Malgeri, and uh, he really, you know, sticks with all of all of the real classic recipes. So, 
and he came by and, and, and brought his book to the shop and we looked at pictures of ourselves from 30 years ago and it was really fun. So I'd say Nick. That's a good choice. Um, it's funny. I got like so nervous when you asked that question. My mind immediately was like a tumbleweed floating around in there and I'm like, ah. um. <laughs> You're like someone interesting. You're like, just think of someone interesting. <laughs> I know, it's like, you're like, repeat, repeat, <laughs> repeat. But um, who have some of the people been on that we've been that have been picked? We've definitely talked about Alice Waters, Carla Petrini, Steve Jenkins. Um, who else have we talked about? I mean, it, it sort of deviates towards like a mentor question, and and that can Mike be someone. Mike Edison said his publisher, who helped him navigate how to get a book made and how to get the most out of your yeah. publisher to pay for the trip, all the ins and outs of the publishing world. I feel like the person that's like just coming to mind in this moment is Matt Weingarten, who was a, a chef that I worked for at Savoy, and I guess what I really took away from my time with Matt is this approach to to kind of cooking that was really driven by curiosity and uh, like you were striving for balance so in a way I feel like he really taught me a lot about how to um, think about like the taste and the texture of food as a cook I mean I'd have that training kind of on the other end but but thinking about the like I just remember there was this dish and my instinct was to slice these apples and put them in this like beautiful fan because I'd seen it in a magazine like gourmet and I'm like, this is what fancy people do. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, but you put that, what you want after this like hunk of cheese is like a big, crunchy, juicy bite of apple to like cleanse the palate. And if you have this like thin, beautiful wisp, it just doesn't work. Um, so the idea that like the aesthetics of food are only good if they serve like what's happening in your mouth, um, which yeah, it has to taste good. Yeah, so and, many like, people don't right. get that. Yeah, I mean, we always talk about Jezre judging all these competitions. You're like, oh, 400 salami, oh my god, over three days, how many were good? He's like two. Yeah, and you're like, you're, he's not being harsh. Nope. Well, and also, yeah, just thinking about how you eat. You can't eat so many of things back to back like there's a reason you don't roll out a whole new menu in one day you do things in progression you have to think about like how your palate changes with how you eat and that's not even for fancy that's just for, for yeah, what like the good. composition of your plate right he was always like there needs to be a place of like refuge on the plate you can't have the super like seasoned fatty delicious meat idea. and mm -hmm. then like have like you know mashed potatoes that are like also really built out because your your palate needs a place to go for release so it can come back so you can kind of eat through the meal in this like balanced way and cool. i don't know that that i think i think about all the time so we're going to take a quick break and then uh we'll be back with a little bit more from aaron fairbanks and lizzie young stick around Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kotbalk Cave-Age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Allison Kane, and I'm the host of In the Sauce here on HRN. Now that I'm expanding my cooking school to a sauce line in grocery stores, I need all the help I can get. And I want to help other entrepreneurs build their brands too. You can find In the Sauce wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. All right, and we're back. This is the Main Course OG, broadcasting live on Heritage Radio Network from Roberta's in Bushwick. We are in studio today with Erin Fairbanks and Lizzie Young. Patrick is great, strongly outnumbered by women today. 
I know. How you doing? Feeling good? Yeah, I'm all right. I think you like a man, man with, with good taste. Better. Thanks Ex- for asking. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, Lizzie, we were chatting yesterday, and uh, you told me you just sold a book to someone about women working in hospitality in the 20s and 30s. How do you select books for your shop? Um, I, I, you know, because I'm so interested in the history of food, but I'm also interested in people. So that really spoke to me because of um, this. It was actually a book about uh, the restaurant workers um, of New York City. And the actual the the special collections librarian who bought it um, from the uh, New York Academy of Medicine, um, and they were studying the effects on working so hard. And it was actually 1916. But um, things like that, just you know, they're just these stories about people and food and people go together. And I take all these little you know roads. Um, in my mind, you know, from one thing to another, whether it's um, women, uh, farm workers, uh, uh, chefs, and then particular like areas of food. So, do you go in looking for a specific type of book and try to find it, or no. are there like warehouses somewhere, or when someone dies, do you go to their house and see and, and purchase certain books? How is how does that economy work? So so I'm part of the um, ABAA, which is the Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America. And um, there is many, many people who are constantly online um, putting what they have up all day long. Um, so I get to pick and choose. Um, uh, people are putting lists. People, most people are generalists when they're when they're booksellers, um, and since I'm a specialist, I can look at these lists and go like, you know, that's perfect for me. You know, whether it's something from prohibition um, about drinking, about making some kind of cocktail, um, you know, it's 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 actually fairly easy. I don't have to really do the go and pick through people's books. And have you ever found a book that someone was just giving away and you knew that it was worth like a million dollars i mean is that kind of what a book person wants like, that's I the ultimate find. that's like that ultimate story that you know people in the in the rare book world talk about i haven't had that that experience happen yet i've, I've paid for all my books but i'm still waiting <laughs> for that you know the first edition of joy of cooking with the dust wrapper to show up with, with a some, typo on the cover with the dust wrapper it's it's unheard of and if, if that shows up i'm just going to I'm going to cry. <laughs> we were talking about this last week. Like, are there fines anymore at a flea market or yes. at a yard sale? Or does everybody think that everything has a value to the point where they put everything online because they think they can get a mm. little more than someone just, you know, walking in? Well, it's for the first time in history, certain rare things or keeping things are not being made anymore as much. It's much smaller. In the old days, that was all that was being made. Every dresser, every drawer, every chair, every little cup was made by hand in a kind of artisan way. And now, all of a sudden, that it's factory, those things are going to... So it's obviously dwindling, uh, like paying for orchestras, you know, 100-person orchestras to travel around the world to 80 cities. I mean, that's dwindling. Right. I mean, if there's only 1,000 of what, you know, of this particular book made, then you know that since it's paper, I mean, half of them are gone. Half of them, you know, half of that are, you know, in in bad shape. So just having a pristine copy of something. So what are, can you tell us like two of your most expensive books and why? Um, Well, one of the oldest books I have is from the 16th century and it's about um, cultivation of olives. Um, And it's got some beautiful plates in it. uh, and then I would say, actually, I do have the first edition of The Joy of Cooking without the dust wrapper. But it How was. How much does that go for if I can uh, ask? I think it's like, uh, like 3000 oh, wow. um, But it, it was self published. So her first book was self published. It was kind of out of need. Um, and, uh, you know, so there weren't that many. Hmm. And then after it became a success, then somebody else picked it up. Was there any book you would never part with? As a rare book dealer. You're, you can't yeah. say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like being a dog breeder. Ultimately, the dogs have to go. You know, you can't keep them all, even though yeah, they're cute. Yeah, exactly. Erin, tell us about uh, Women in Hospitality United. I know I just received an email that you now have a membership. Actually, yeah. I think I should explain oh, it. No, okay. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have, you've been at one of the events, maybe. Yeah, well, Heritage has also been an early supporter of ours. Um so, um, Women in Hospitality United is a nonprofit um, that the, the goal is really to affect culture change in the hospitality industry. So, how do we build 
more equity and access to advanced, like traditionally disenfranchised groups and had a really organic beginning. My, one of my co-founders, Elizabeth Meltz, had worked for the uh, Batali Bastianich group for just over a decade. And in the fall of 2017, when a lot of the initial harassment um, coverage, you know, in particular about Mario, but about a num- number of other chefs was coming out, she was really having, you know, a conflicted reaction here as someone who had been a longtime mentor and supporter of hers and to get what felt like a lot of new uh, information. It was, where do I put that? And, and you know, you look back over the course of your career and you're a little bit like, should I have known? Like, did I know? Should we have done something different? And then also, what do I do now? Do I, like, stay in this company and, like, work for change? Do I quit in protest? And she really felt like, man, if I'm feeling all these things, other people must be too. So she literally sent out an email to like 100 women in hospitality that she knew and and we got together. And as you can imagine, like people came in pretty hot. You know, women are not a monolith. So we had people at the table who were kind of like, I don't get what the big deal is. I know how to go to a party and tell someone to get their goddamn hand off my lap to folks who were in the midst of like a traumatic outcry to folks who had been let go for speaking out in their organization to folks who were just like pissed and fed up. And, you know, we didn't come to that meeting with like, we're like, we figured it out. We essentially said like, Hey, let's, uh, let's continue to meet and talk. We'll, we'll host five meetings over the course of the next five months and kind of see what might emerge. And, so, so what's emerged? So what's emerged um, is we we spent I think most of that time developing this um, activation called the Solution Sprint. So kind of pulling from hackathons in the tech industry or design sprints or kind of pitch competitions. We're like, how can we get uh, frontline staff stakeholders together to really think about creating solutions and. Um, so the sprint is basically a way to bring people together in facilitated groups to present an idea that they have. And how do you take things from like around the kitchen table conversation to get them on paper to see like, hey, does this initiative I'm thinking about really have legs? Is this a project that so it's would resonate formulating. with people? It's basically deciding where your focus will go, right? Because it's, it's still being discussed. So... The the sprint is essentially like a tool okay. that people can use to kind of create their own change wherever they ah, are. I see, I see. Cool. Um, so like chefs are already really, you know, chefs and like drink makers are already really good at this. You know, you imagine like when you're going to make a new dish, right? It s- starts out in this very conceptual place and then you practice and you iterate and you bring people in to have conversation. And then at the end of this, like thing where you've done it a hundred times, you're like, okay, this is good. We're going to put it on the menu. Mm -hmm. So how can we take that skill set and like apply it to different problems like sexual harassment in the workplace, like creative thinking around how do we support working parents, like access to mental health resources. So ultimately as an organization, we're looking at how can we remove some of these barriers that are holding people back from using the the tools and know-how they already have to create the change they want to see. And you're a nonprofit, 501c3? We are. And how do people donate if they want? Uh, you can just visit the website. It's womeninhospitalityunited.org. Um, you can donate. And then, as Emily said, we just launched a membership program. So we are doing a couple of things that are like benefits of membership. One, we have an online kind of uh, Slack community. So it's a space where you can go to get information, to problem solve. It's kind of interesting. We have people jumping in different Slack channels, being like, hey, I'm a, you know, I'm a, a manager at this bar down in Atlanta. This thing happened last night. I'm not really sure what to do. So people can really weigh in in real time and give you feedback, but you can also promote or share different ideas, post for jobs. And then over the course of the next year, we'll be hosting a series of webinars and workshops and traveling to a bunch of different cities to do really looking at like, how can we do skill building activities where we bring um, kind of coaching techniques, or industry-specific kind of know-how to these communities. And a lot of that is really just driven by our members and what they're saying they kind of want to learn about. Fantastic. Yeah. And uh, Lizzie, if if people are not in New York, can they look at your rare books online? They can. I have a website, you know, www.lizzyyoung, with one Y, L-I-Z-Z-Y-O-U-N-G, bookseller.com. I would put a camera, like a 24-hour camera, like when when you open... And it's on. And so the website is actually you. Oh. 
and and seeing the bookstore. I think that's really cool. Okay, I'll put that in there. And the people can be at the bookstore while they're reading the books. But or then maybe they're not they going to come. That's true. It's such a cute little two hundred square it. foot. Don't little focus space. it on the titles. But uh, no, I mean, I think that's great. I mean, a bookstore is just exciting. It's like a, I've always thought we needed a camera here. There's something cool about. The fact that these places exist where people actually leave their house and come I, I to. I used to think it was kind of weird how, like, you can watch, uh, there are some televised podcasts or yeah. radio stations. Mm-hmm. And, like, you're looking at people with headphones on sitting at mics at a round table. But Do you know there where is... it started? The sports no. world. Like, yeah. Mike Francesa. They put the TV in there. He's sitting there with a big bowl of peanuts. I don't want to see like, him. Yeah. Mike Francesa. Yeah, he's not the most attractive man. But, but no, I, I think. I like his it, voice. It is a different. He broadcasts five hours a day. That visual Whoa. part is different. It definitely changes your experience of sort of like how you're also to then also see what somebody looks like whose voice you've only heard for however long and then to have that experience of being like oh i am that you know not just a listener or fly on the wall but i'm, I'm also watching and seeing what's up it works like the christmas or thanksgiving fire that that wpix does <laughs> oh, the 24 yeah. or there's something a little connected <laughs> to that like not enough is happening that it should be on tv but it's also really cool yeah. Well, I think we're like visual creatures, right? And you're like trying to get eyes. to all this. We have two of them. Yeah. God gave us two. <laughs> Not good. Well, this has been a very good show. Very exciting. Mom and Pop Shops is a big theme of this show, and we love talking about them. Thank and you for inviting me. Where are you located? Address? Uh, 212 DeGraw Street, Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. Very cool. We'll stop by for sure. Yeah, yeah. I can't yeah. wait to come by. You're around the corner for me. Oh, see you soon. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. All right. Stick around, guys. Uh, Tech Bytes is up next at 11. Aaron Silva, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Will we have you back? Yes, please. I'll be back. Sounds good. All right. We'll be back. uh, We'll be back next week with uh, two wonderful ladies from Union Square Hospitality Group, from Union Square Cafe and Daily Provisions. See you guys next week. Nice job. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.